Thank you for joining Crossroads Community Church today. We're so excited about what God's doing in the lives of the people of our church and the lives of those who are listening online. If you have any questions or want more information about our church, visit our website at www.crossroadsccl.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now let's jump into the Word with this week's message. There's a question. How many of you watch wrestling? Any wrestling? How many of you watch it, but you don't want to let others know that you watch it, okay? Maybe that's probably the more important question. Uh, You know you're a serious wrestling fan when on your resume you put this, I am the best there is, the best there was, and the best that ever will be. You elbow smash your elbow smash your dog and then turn him over for the three count. And instead of reading a bedtime story to your kids, you put them in a sleeper hold. You know you're a serious wrestling fan. I'm going to admit I I really don't watch wrestling today, so it's not something I do. So put your hearts to rest at that. But I grew up watching it, and I was a pretty serious religious fan. Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, wrestling came on TV, and I was right there. When I grew up in Kentucky and Louisville, Tuesday night at the Louisville Gardens, there was the wrestling matches, and I went to it frequently. And I saw the likes of Jerry the King Lawler, Macho Man Randy Savage, Bruiser Brody, the Crusher, And you could always count on these guys to body slam, to pile drive the bad guys, the Iron Sheik, Ted DiBiase, the million million dollar man. And when we come to the Bible, it's interesting that for hundreds of years, the Jews, the religious leaders, have been looking for a Messiah that would be a bruiser and that would be a crusher. And that he would body slam, he would pile drive the enemies of Israel, the corrupt establishment, the Roman government. But as we're facing the cross, when the Messiah actually comes, he is not a bruiser, he is not a crusher, but rather according to Isaiah 53, 5, 700 years before he came, he was bruised. For our iniquities. He was not a bruiser, but he was bruised. He was crushed for our transgressions. He was not a crusher, but he was one who was crushed. And there was nobody, when the events of the cross took place, who could understand, who could comprehend, who could wrap their minds around who Jesus was and what he was doing, because what he was doing brought something that was so unique, a love, a forgiveness, and a grace that comes from the heart of God that had never been fully or completely seen until Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus has become a substitute for which there is no substitute. And when you are on your journey with the Lord, when you are on your journey with Christ as a disciple maker, as a disciple follower of Jesus, until you understand that there is no substitute for His substitution, 
you will not understand what the love of God is. You will not understand how to work through the times of darkness and difficulty in your own life. You will not understand what it means to walk through the storms into the places of God's blessing until you understand the nature and the purpose of God's love. So as we're in the second part of this series on facing the cross, I want to talk about why there is no substitute for the substitution of Jesus Christ. So as I said, if you get your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 27. If you're using your phones, click on there. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, we're going to have the Scriptures by way of the screen. But I'm thinking maybe some of you this morning, you're going through a prolonged period of darkness or disagreement with somebody. And you're trying to understand how does the love of God fit into this situation. Maybe for some of you right now, there's prayers that you are praying that just are not going answered and God seems to be distant. Maybe for some of you, life has thrown some type of curveball and you simply can't seem to make sense of how to navigate your faith through this situation. Maybe these things are happening so that you can more anchor your faith in the one in whom there his love, there is no substitute. Matthew 27. Now let me kind of set the backdrop here. It's a long, brutal night. Most of us know that. Jesus has been betrayed by his friends. One of his closest colleagues, Judas, has committed suicide. We saw that last week. How tragic. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane by the police in Jerusalem. The religious leaders, the religious big shots and big wigs are now brutally treating Jesus. They are mocking him. They are hitting him. They are spitting in his face. He is being scourged. And by the time we come to this scene, Jesus has been through five different trials. Kangaroo courts would probably be more of an accurate description. And now when you come to Matthew 27, verse 11, it is now the sixth and final trial, and it occurs before this man who is a governor of the province of Judea, and his name is Pilate. And so if you're in a note-writing mood, the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus is the unique substitute. Jesus is the unique substitute for our sin. In verse 11, it says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Let's talk a little bit about Pilate. Who is he? Pilate is a Gentile. He is a governor over the southern area of Israel, Judea, which is the most prominent area or province of Israel where Jerusalem is located. He was appointed there in A.D. 26. It's now A.D. 33. And when you think of Pilate, we tend to think that he was a man who was more measured, who was more calm, who was more reasonable because of the account that we see here in these verses that we're going to look at. But that's not really accurate. 
History describes him as a brutal, as a hard, as a violent man. In fact, when he came to rule in A.D. 26 into Jerusalem, he wanted to make a stance and wanted to make a claim about the power and the greatness of Rome over the nation of Israel and the Jews. And so the first thing that he did is he came in with his chariots and his armor and his power. He took this eagle uh, eagle symbol, which was a symbol of the, the pride and the power of Rome. And he went into the temple and he placed that eagle into the temple. Now obviously he is, was not a believer in the philosophy of how to win friends and influence people. That did not go over well. Because in response to that, the Jews sent 5,000 men to confront Pilate in an arena demanding that he remove that eagle head from the temple, which was considered a desecration and an idol of their worship. And Pilate refused and he sent his army. He threatened to slaughter them. These 5,000 men laid their necks bare and said, you can kill us, but you cannot have idolatry within our temple. And so he backed down, he removed it. And Pilate does one misstep like this after another, which was simply needless, which was simply worthless, which had no political value for running that province. It was just simply an issue of pride. And so after so many missteps, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council goes to Emperor Tiberius, the Caesar, the emperor, and issues a complaint. And because of that, right now at this moment, Pilate's on probation. He could very well lose his job if he does one more thing to cause the Jews to go to a place of discontent and revolt, which is something the Roman Empire simply did not want to have. And so the Jews, the religious leaders, are wanting Jesus to be crucified. They didn't like crucifixion. They hated it. But they would make the exception in the case of Jesus because they wanted him to be publicly defiled, humiliated, and tortured. They have no means or basis as Jews to crucify. That is only a punishment that the Romans can practice. And so they bring Jesus before Pilate on some trumped-up charges. And Pilate knows this. He knows the man before him is innocent, but he's got a problem that he just wants to go away. It's an internal religious feud between Jesus and the Jews, and he wants nothing to do with it, but he has to deal with it in order to curry political favor with the Jewish religious establishment. Verse 12 says, When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Pilate never seen anything like this. Here is a man being brought up on charges of a capital crime. He could lose his life. He could be totally destroyed. But he says nothing in his defense. 
Nothing like this Pilate has ever seen. And there's two realities that are going on here with the silence of Jesus. And the first is this. Jesus knows that whatever he says, no matter how carefully constructed or well construed, it's going to be twisted and used against him by his enemies. And so he just remains silent. You've heard the saying that some things are better left unsaid. We believe that, don't we? We usually believe that after we've said it, don't we? You know? And it's instructive to look at the words of Jesus that sometimes silence is the wisest policy when you're in a place of conflict with your enemies who are going to take your words and twist them in no matter what, which way you use them, just be silent and don't give them further fuel in order to escalate the conflict. That's the first thing that's going on. But there is something much, 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 much bigger. Jesus is silent here because He is consenting to be guilty. He is silent because He is consenting to be guilty for the crimes which He's being accused of. Jesus has never done anything wrong Jesus has never sinned. And Pilate knows that the charges are trumped up, that they're false, that they make no sense. But Jesus is consenting to the guilt, not because He is guilty, but because we are guilty. He is consenting to the guilt, not for His sake, but for our sake. And He is silent in His mouth, but He is praying to the Father. And He says, Father, I will bear their guilt. I will take the shame. I will allow their punishment to come into my body. And Jesus is consenting, not for His sake, but for our sake. My ministry, I've done hundreds and hundreds of funerals. And I've read hundreds and hundreds of obituaries. And I've done hundreds and hundreds of eulogies. And studies have been done to this, and my experience would bear this, that the most common word that we use when we talk about a loved one who has passed away, what we most commonly remember is how they helped us. That word help comes all the time. He helped so much at the local organization. He helped at their church. He helped at the school. He helped at the Little League. He helped in his neighborhood. He helped his friends. Helped, helped, helped. And that is so valuable when we help someone, isn't it? But Jesus is not helping anyone. He is becoming a literal substitute. He's not merely helping us and making us a better version of ourselves, but He is becoming a substitute for ourselves. He is taking our sin and He is bearing it in His body so that He can in turn give us His righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so when God looks at me, He doesn't see Anthony as a nice guy a pretty good fellow, a helpful pastor, or those kind of things, he sees the very righteousness of Jesus. He sees somebody who is blameless. 
He sees somebody who is totally forgiven, not because of what I have done or achieved, but because of what Jesus has done for me. When he looks at you, he doesn't see a nice person. He doesn't see a sweet lady. He doesn't see a helpful person who helps at the school or their community, though these are good things and they may be true, but he sees the righteousness of God. And because He is our substitution, there is no substitute for the love of God that is displayed in Christ Jesus. And He is silent before Pilate because He is bearing our guilt. Well, second truth is this. By way of your notes, Jesus is the unique Savior. Jesus is the unique Savior. We encounter a second person within the story and he seems more like an intrusion. He doesn't seem to fit. This character seems kind of odd. His name is Barabbas. Verse 15, it says, Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. In other words, the Romans had this custom during the Passover where they would release a man who the public thought had a right to go, who maybe had served his time or was was charged in a way that that really didn't measure the guilt that, that was there. There's something like, give this guy a break. And so they would release somebody as an act of mercy. In verse 16, it says, at that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was, and notice his name, Jesus Barabbas. He was well-known. This guy would have been the Al Capone, the El Chapo. He would have been the Pablo Escobar of the criminal syndicate at that time. He was the most brutal. He was the most violent. He was the most well-known prisoner. And Pilate brings him out thinking they need to release somebody. And if I bring out the very worst criminal, certainly they're going to let Jesus go because I don't want to condemn this innocent man. Verse 17. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Skipping down to verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. And which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they answered, crucify him. Crucify him. Imagine being Barabbas on this day. You're in a building. You know you're guilty. Many people believe that middle cross that Jesus hung on was originally meant for Barabbas. He's a notorious criminal. He knows it's his last day. And as the guards come to get him, he hears this murmur, he hears this chanting. He can't distinguish all of the noises and the sounds, but he knows that it's his final day. And he hears this crowd starting to chant, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And he wonders what's going on. And then he hears the words, crucify him, crucify him, 
crucify him. And Barabbas is certain that he is a dead man. And as he comes out to the crowd, he is released. He is set free to go. And he sees this man there whose name is Jesus. And he realizes, I'm going free because he's going to die in my place. I'm going to go free because he's going to pay my penalty. And we never have a record of Barabbas going to Jesus saying, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you for paying my price. Thank you for going in my place. In fact, Barabbas probably went out of the crowd and he went to his thug friends and they're all high-fiving him and saying, man, it's great your release. It's great that you're getting off scot-free. He probably heard the crowd chanting his name and said, oh, they love me. I'm a fan. I'm a popular person. And he ignores Jesus. And Jesus right there, what is he doing? He is praying to the Father and he is saying, I love Barabbas. I love him. Father, let him go free. I am dying for humanity so that humanity can go free. It's interesting that you look at the name of Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. And Jesus means God saves. Comes from two words in the Hebrew, Yah and Hosea. And so Jesus, God saves. Yah meaning God and Hosea meaning salvation. But Barabbas is a very interesting name. Bar means son of, and Abba or Abbas means father. Son of a father. Now, this isn't a coincidence. This is something appointed by the Lord when we look at his name. What does it mean that Jesus Barabbas, son of a father, if You ever look at a show or you look on the news, you ever see some notorious criminal and they talk about his life's history and sometimes they'll go back to his childhood and they'll show his picture as a child. They'll show him with his family. And you see the humanity of that criminal when you see him as a child with his family, don't you? You realize at one time there was a person there who had this innocence and this love and this potential. Sometimes when somebody's caught in a crime or somebody has done something horrible and then we see the humanity of that person when they interview that person's parents and the parents are devastated and saying, this is my son, this is my daughter. I can't believe I'm shocked that they would do something like this. And when we see Barabbas, his name is, he's the son of a father. There's somebody who loves him. There's somebody who sees his value. There's somebody who sees his humanity. How many of you grew up watching Scooby-Doo? Any Scooby-Doo fans here? It wasn't my favorite cartoon, but I've seen enough of them. You got Scooby-Doo, it's Shaggy, it's Fred, it's Daphne, it's Velma, Their dog, of course, Scooby-Doo. They're the gang. They always get into some type of trouble. 
They're always lost or some adventure. Somebody's chasing them. Somebody's scared. Something's been robbed. And they've got to be on the, the place of being a detective. And they're hunting down some monster, some ghoul, some villain, some spooky person. And every time that they find out who this person is and they lift the cover off, who is it? It's always the nice teacher. It's the pleasant gardener. It's the janitor. It's the person you wouldn't expect. And when you look at Barabbas, it's the same way. He is the son of a father. There's people who love him, who value him, who see his humanity. And behind the sin and behind the criminality and behind his rebellion is a human person who God loves who has value, and who Jesus is dying for. And in this place, Jesus is saying to the Father, let Barabbas go because I love him, even though he is ignoring and rejecting and rebelling against the sacrifice that I make. And folks, do you know who Barabbas is? It's me. And it's you, because we're valuable to God. And even despite our sin and our rebellion, God says, I love them, and I want to pour out by grace to them, even though they sin and ignore me. Do you know who Barabbas is? It is that neighbor who is bothering you and playing the music too loud at night. It is that co-worker who is in competition with you, and has said unfair things or false things about you. It is that person who you've been in conflict with. It is that relative who has not invited you to something you should have been invited to. They are Barabbas. And Jesus says, I love them and I value them. And even though they've done wrong, I am going to die for them because I want to restore the beauty of their humanity which I created in my image. Verse 23. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took the water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. He said, it is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Well, let me tie a bow on this. What does understanding the unique substitution of God's love mean for us in our journey for Jesus, our journey with Jesus, and as we live out our faith in Him? The first thing is this, by way of your notes, God's love is clear. Choose to look up. God's love given to us through the cross is clear. So look up. If I were to ask you, what is the clearest evidence you have of God's love this morning? What would you say? 
Would it be the time that maybe God had intervened and had healed your marriage? Would it be the time that God had provided for you financially when you were in a place of real financial difficulty? Would it be at the place where God had stepped in and healed you of some illness or disease? And if that is a case, if that is evidence of God's love for you, then I would say great. But there is so much more. There is so much more. It was several years ago, there was a woman who was in our church a few churches back, and she invited my wife, Brenda, to go out one afternoon, and she just wanted to love on my wife. And she took her out shopping, bought her this beautiful dress, took her to lunch, and just fellowshiped with her. And there in the midst of that, this woman looked at Brenda, and almost with tears in her eyes, she looked at her and she says, Brenda, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And that was kind of odd. It was nice, but it was kind of odd. You don't usually experience that every day. And it was going to be that very day that we would receive news that would put our family, me and her in particular, through months and months and months of one of the most difficult times, if not the most difficult time of our lives. And we took that word that this lady said to Brenda, it's just prophetic. That as we're going through those times of darkness and difficulty, God loves us. And when I went through that time of darkness and those difficulties and I look back, I thank God for every moment because of what it taught me, of how it trained me, of how it prepared me. But it was through that time of darkness, the only evidence I had of God's love for me at that moment was the cross of Jesus Christ. That He died as a substitute in my place. And that alone was evidence enough. This week, I have to admit, I've been through some stress and pressures. We all go through that, don't we? And sometimes, you know, I handle stress pretty well, but there was a point in time I just had to bow my head. And the only relief that I can find is to know, Jesus, you died for me. And that is enough evidence that even though I'm going through stress right now, I need no more evidence of your love than what you did 2,000 years ago, John Owen, preacher from several years ago, said, the greatest unkindness, the greatest insult that you can do to Jesus is to doubt his love for you. And when we see the cross, how do we doubt? And when it comes to your story, and you think, how do you know God loves you? How do you know God cares for you? Does your story connect with His story? Does your story of the journey of your life connect with His story, the journey that took Him to the cross as a substitution for your sins? And if it doesn't, then there's something lacking in the formation of your thinking and of your faith that if you do not connect your story in His love primarily, to his story in the cross. Max Lucado says this, God's love never ceases, never. Though we spurn him, ignore him, reject him, despise him, disobey him, he will not change. 
Our evil cannot diminish His love. Our goodness cannot increase it. Our faith does not earn it any more than our stupidity jeopardizes it. God doesn't love us less if we fail or more if we succeed. God just loves us. Amen? Amen. Number two, God's love is near, so choose to step forward. God's love is near, so choose to step forward. Last night as we had our welcome dinner and we had some newer people attending from the church and had a dinner to get to know them and I took them on this tour and the first thing I said is that we here as a church, it's our mission is to pass on an obedient relationship with Christ to our community. Because God so loved us and has so saved us, we have an obligation to take that to the world around us. And I'm excited right now that in May we're going to be launching our third missions outpost. We want seven this year where we show the love of Jesus. And I've been quadrupling down and challenging people to pray for their neighbors, to pray for people who do they're close to but that are far from God. And one person has begun to do that this week and said to me as I pray through this list, I am just in tears. And why am I in tears? I said, you're in tears because God is downloading His love into your heart for the people around you, for the Barabbases that He died for. Challenged another person. He says, I don't know where to begin. How do I start? How do I love people in my community? How do I do this? And I said, just pray, ask God to lead you. And this person did. And within a couple of days, he found a person for him to disciple and to share the love of Jesus. And Jesus is not asking big things of us. He's just asking us to take the next step forward, to sow another seed, to pray another prayer, to love another person. I want to invite the worship team to come forward and I want to close with this story. The prayer team as well, they would come up to the front, to the sides or onto the stage. Fictitious story, but I think it makes a good point. There was a woman who wanted peace in the world and peace in her heart, but she was very frustrated. The world seemed to be falling apart. She would read papers and get depressed. One day she decided to go shopping and she went to a mall and picked a store at random. She walked in and surprised to see Jesus behind the counter. She knew it was Jesus because he walked in and was surprised to see Jesus behind the counter. She knew it was him. And so she looked at pictures that were there at the counter and she looked again and again at him And she finally got up the nerve and asked, excuse me, are you Jesus? He said, I am. Do you work here? And Jesus says, I own the store. Oh, what do you sell here? Oh, just about anything. Anything, she said. Yeah, about anything you want. What do you want? She says, I don't know. Well, Jesus says, feel free to walk around and down the aisles and make a list and see what it is you want and then come back and we'll see what we can do for you. She did just that. She walked up and down the aisles, and she saw peace on earth. She saw no more war. She saw no more hunger or poverty. She saw peace in families, no more drugs. 
She saw the careful use of resources. She wrote all of this down furiously. But by the time she got to the counter, she had a long list. And Jesus took the list and skimmed through it. He looked up and he smiled at her. He says, no problem. And then he bent down behind the counter and picked out all sorts of things. Stood up and laid out packets. She asked, what are these? And Jesus replied, seed packets. This is a catalog store. She's, she said, you mean I don't get the finished product? No, this is a place of dreams. It's a place of vision. You come and see what it looks like, and then I give you the seeds to make it happen. You plant the seeds, you nurture them, you help them to grow, and then someone else will come along and will further reap the benefits. Oh, she said, and she left the store without buying anything. Jesus just wants us to plant seeds. He's loved us, so he's called us to do simple acts of love, to show his love for the world.